welcome to episode 6 of the Underground Christian Broadcast, where we examine our times from a Christian scientific and strategic perspective. Up to now, we've examined some unsettling subjects that need to be examined, but we don't want to lose sight that God wants us to take pleasure in the life he's given us, and one way we can do that is by studying the Bible. Some of you might say, hey Pete, uh, why do you talk so much about the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked. The reason is because we all need a standard of reference to discern between what's true and what's false and what's good and what's evil. When I was in the army, the standard of reference imposed on us was the army. In the most practical sense, the army determined what was true and right and good. When I became a scientist, it was just assumed that science was the absolute standard of reference. I mean, isn't it obvious that science has all the answers? Uh, that's what they tell us anyway. Times changed, and now the government thinks that it is the standard of reference, or if you listen to a megalomaniacal bureaucrat like Anthony Fauci, he is the standard. You know, if you believe in science, you, you have to listen to him. But despite all these standards of reference, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us behave as if we are our own standard of reference. That's especially true in the heart of the land of the free and the home of the I will do whatever the heck it is I want to do. But none of these are the real standard of reference. How do I know this? One simple word, reason. Come, says the Lord, and let us reason together. Today, we're going to get a real biblical treat. I'm going to tell you some things that you're never going to hear anywhere else. Well, not nowhere. You could hear these somewhere else, but it's not likely that you will. I am going to tell you some things that you're not going to hear on most other podcasts or on YouTube or in any sermon by any preacher in a church on the internet. And it's going to really bless your life. The Lord loves to reason with us because reason is the key to understanding life and the world around us. That's what science is supposed to be about, understanding the world around us. One of the main attributes of the world around us, especially now in the 21st century, is the reality of standards. They're everywhere, and they're unavoidable. So what do I mean by standards? Well, standards are fixed, unchanging, immovable points of reference. They're unchangeable absolutes. But there are no absolutes, profess the clever philosophers. This is the battle cry, the mantra of secular universities all around the world. Well, if anyone ever says anything so silly to you, like there are no absolutes, just remind them that they just uttered an absolute. Well, maybe there's one they might grudgingly admit, but uh, where there's one, there's bound to be countless others. Right, Anthony Fauci? Masks work. Uh, no, masks don't work. Uh, I meant masks work. Well, sometimes masks work if they're the right kind. Oh, any kind of mask works as long as your face is covered, which is certainly true if the purpose of wearing a mask is to cover your face. Do you know that they wear masks in satanic rituals? Do you know that they stand about six feet apart in satanic rituals? Oh, don't worry, it's just a coincidence. Life is filled with standards. Take OSHA, for example, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. It's part of the federal government, just like Anthony Fauci. OSHA makes all kinds of standards, and they aren't wishy-washy about them either. For example, OSHA has a standard called 1910-134. It's the standard for respiratory protection. This standard defines what kinds of devices are acceptable to protect workers from respiratory threats. Well, I can speak about these standards with some authority because I'm a professional scientist who conducts hazardous waste cleanups under these standards. I have OSHA training and certification in this area. I have over 25 years of experience, so I guess that makes me what you might call an expert. 
This is not the main topic, but just an interesting aside given the ongoing insistence on wearing masks in certain venues like airports and schools. So I thought we'd talk about it just briefly. Regulated airborne threats range from large macro particles like stone and wood dust down to microscopic viruses and aerosols. A general rule in respiratory protection is that the smaller the particle you're trying to stop, the higher the level of respiratory protection you're going to need. This is because the smaller the particle, the harder it is to stop. Now, according to the all-knowing authority of Wikipedia, Anthony Fauci is a physician, a scientist, and an immunologist. He is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and chief medical advisor to the President of the United States. This very Anthony Fauci demands that we wear paper or cloth masks to keep us and our traveling or schooling comrades safe from the scourge of airborne viruses. The aforementioned OSHA standard defines many types of respiratory threats that require respiratory protection, one of which is viruses. It defines which respiratory protection equipment provides an adequate level of protection for each category of threat. You might be surprised to know that nowhere in this standard will you find that it defines a paper or cloth face piece as an acceptable level of protection for anything at all. Not for dust, not for sawdust, and certainly not for microscopic viral particles and aerosols. In fact, filtering paper and cloth masks are so ineffective at stopping anything at all that OSHA does not even regulate their use because it does not consider them respiratory protection. Period. So how much respiratory protection does a paper or cloth mask afford you for protection against viruses? Come on, class! Uh, right. Zero. So let me repeat. There is no airborne health threat that OSHA finds a paper or cloth face covering to be protective of. None. Zero. Now, do you think that Anthony Fauci knows this? Of course he does. He pays laboratories around the world to play with extremely dangerous viruses. He knows what kinds of respiratory protection is needed to handle viral pathogens. So why does Dr. Fauci push an edict onto the public to wear these masks? Well, I'll give you a hint. It's because of symbolism. Masks not only symbolize something, and I'll leave you to ponder what that might be, they have a valuable secondary benefit. They generate anxiety and cultivate a fear of others. Like OSHA, all environmental regulatory agencies use standards, and we might say they're the kind of absolute standards that we don't always like. They don't care much why you don't like them, because if you violate them, you're going to get fined or worse. Take New Jersey, for example. You can have five parts per billion of benzene, which is a part of gasoline, in groundwater under your home or business, in a mass of groundwater that's not used for anything and never will be. But that doesn't matter. You will be cleaning up that benzene until you get that concentration down to one part per billion. You think that's easy? You think that's cheap? Well, I guarantee you it's not. But the DEP doesn't care if you go bankrupt trying to clean up that vanishingly small amount of benzene because you have violated its benzene standard. It doesn't matter that in Massachusetts, for example, you can leave that five parts per billion of benzene in the groundwater with no problem at all and get on with your life. The New Jersey DEP could care less that at a federal site, you can leave up to 15 parts per billion of benzene in place and get on with your life. Or that in some states with rational risk assessment rules, you might be able to leave 100 parts per billion of benzene in place. None of that matters in New Jersey. 
you're going to spend up to your entire fortune cleaning it up to one part per billion. Now that is a standard. In marriages and other personal relationships, there are other kinds of standards. Most marriages, and I emphasize most, have a no cheating standard written into the marriage vow. There's no such excuse as my truth about sex with others has evolved or sex with other people is all relative, at least if you expect to remain successfully in the relationship. The IRS has some standards too, and they don't like their standards violated. If you violate them, it's going to be kind of like robbing the mob of their money. Science certainly has some standards. We call some of them laws and others constants. These standards don't change no matter what we think of them or how much we don't like them. And of course, there are criminal laws, which are also a kind of a standard. We're not very happy when district attorneys decide to apply these standards to some people and not to others. Sometimes we even riot and burn things down over it. We want them to apply them like standards. Yeah, there are a lot of standards in life. In fact, you might say that life runs on standards. It's just in our fallen human condition, we really, really want to be the ones who set the standards. This is why tyranny is so popular. Tyrants set the standards for everyone else. It may not be so good for the run-of-the-mill subject, maybe, but it sure makes the tyrant feel important. It's even pretty good for the tyrant's lieutenant and the lieutenant's lieutenant because they can act like tyrants too. This is why tyrants are attracted to and proliferate in government. It's the place where the tyrannically minded get to express themselves most effectively. Business settings can work nicely too. Despite all the wannabe tyrants in the world, it's God who actually sets the standards the permanent ones that don't change. And that's why so many people hate God, the real one at least, when they notice that God doesn't strike them dead with lightning or disease when they violate his standards, they conclude that there's no God and therefore they can do and think and believe anything that they want without consequence. They don't perceive God's gracious and long-suffering patience. Uncorrected, their attitude and actions will have a devastating consequence on their eternity. Now, God doesn't want that for anyone, so he went to a great deal of trouble to help us understand the actual nature of reality so we do not have to suffer that kind of consequence. He spelled it out for us in a permanent record that we call the Bible. And this is where we get to the part that you will not likely hear anywhere else. You're going to learn some things about God in the Bible you probably have not heard before. And this is the main point. You can know with absolute certainty that God himself wrote the Bible. He signed it. That's right. God himself personally signed the book. He did it so that we can know for certain that it was him who wrote it. And if God wrote it, then what's written in it must be pretty important. Now, here is a thought question. If you were God and you wanted to sign a book in a way that could not be forged, how would you do it? Well, I'm going to show you how he did it. Well, actually, I'm going to talk to you about how he did it. Let's begin with the structure of the Bible, because that's the background that we're going to need to appreciate the miracle of God's authentication of the text, his signature. The Bible is a collection of books written by at least 40 human authors over a 1,500-year period. It's not a single book written by a guy who might have wanted to fool people, and it's not a collection of books written by a group of guys who could have conspired to write it, because no conspiracy goes on for 1,500 years. 
No conspirators could have known which books, for example, would survive the millennia and make it into the final product that we call the Bible. The books, letters, poems, and songs that make up the Bible were written for different purposes, to different audiences, in different cultural periods, under very different circumstances, and by different men. There was no master plan that the authors followed. The texts were painstakingly copied, recopied, lost, found, recopied again, shredded, burned, pieced back together, compared, corrected, argued over, and finally compiled and collated into the document that we today call the Bible. That it exists at all is the first miracle. All Bibles contain the same 66 basic books and other writings. Some Bibles contain additional books, all of which are found in the Old Testament portion of the Bible. The 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament were selected because they are the books that comprise the Jewish scriptures and are the books that all Jews and Christian denominations consider inspired or agree that are inspired. Some denominations use additional books, but they're not universally accepted as being inspired. All Bible versions contain the same 27 books of the New Testament. We're going to concern ourselves today only with 66 basic books. Now, this next part might seem like a little bit of a non sequitur, but hang in there with me. As you might imagine, a God who could create the universe has to be pretty good at math. I mean, he has to be pretty good at math because the universe operates on some pretty complicated mathematical principles. In fact, God made math. Fortunately, he does not expect most of us to be world-class physicists and mathematicians, but he does expect that we can count. Anyone who can count can see God's signature. That's the first element to a signature. It involves numbers, and the signature math is not more complicated than just being able to count. Now, why numbers? Well, for the same reason that computers use numbers for authentication, or military organizations on the battlefield use numbers for authentication. Numbers are simple enough to be universally used by everyone, but complex enough to provide a secure means of communication. If you're buying something in a store, you want to make sure that your debit card is communicating with the store, not with a hacker. The purchase uses authentication to make sure that the transaction only goes between your bank and the merchant's bank. In the army or in the military, you use authentication because you talk to a lot of people on the radio. You've got to make sure that the people that you're talking to are the ones that you really want to talk to. A little story. When I was in the army, I was in army intelligence. And one of the things that we did was we tried to make it difficult on the other side while gathering information about what the other side was doing. And one day, we caught some people, some infantrymen, talking on the radio in a non-secure way. They were not using authentication. We convinced them that we were their headquarters and that they needed to go to a certain place in order to get a nice hot meal after a long, hard day. And it was in the middle of winter, so it was a long, hard, cold day. So they traipsed several hours across country in order to get to that location where they thought there was going to be hot food. Turns out there wasn't anything but snowflakes. Why? Because they didn't authenticate their communications. And so they were actually communicating with people on the other side. Now, that was just kind of an unpleasant lesson for them to learn in the middle of a, of a cold winter in Germany, but it could save their life in a real conflict, because if you do the same thing in a real conflict, you get yourself killed. That's authentication. It's making sure you know who you're talking about. At the first numeric level, God uses integers to illustrate certain concepts. The thing to see is that the same concepts transcend all of the books of the Bible. 
they're all through the Bible. So these concepts are universal no matter which book you're looking at. For that to be true, either all of the authors were given the same script to follow when writing their books, poems, letters, and songs, or all the authors were guided in their writing by God, just as the Apostle Paul claimed in 2 Timothy 3.16 when he said, All Scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed means inspired by God. God influenced the mind of each author to write certain things in certain ways. We're going to look at some of the integers, but not all the ones God uses because we don't have enough time. So we're going to start at 1 and climb up to 7, and we're going to stop there because 7 is the important number. But we're going to cover the numbers up to then just because it's interesting. Number 1. The number 1 is independent of all other numbers and is the source for all other numbers. If 1 is multiplied or divided by itself, it's still 1. It's the only number that's harmonious with every other number. Any number multiplied or divided by 1 is itself. It is the start of all the ordinal numbers, those that show position. It occupies the first position. As such, in the Bible, it represents primacy and denotes sovereignty. For example, in Deuteronomy 6.4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. This is the first in rank, the first in sequence. The rest of the verse goes, You shall love the Lord thy God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This denotes first in importance. The first appearance of things in the Bible are often important. Do you know that I must be about my father's business are the first words recorded from Jesus in the Bible. The last words recorded from Jesus before he died on the cross were, It is finished. What's finished? His father's business. That's what Jesus' life from beginning to end was all about. Jesus is the one. The primary, the first. So one signifies primacy and sovereignty. Number two. The number two denotes another. Now it can be the same as the first or it can be different. It's the first number that can be divided, so two marks division. There are two great divisions of the Bible, the Old and the New Testaments. In Genesis 1, 2 denotes differences in created things. Light from darkness, waters from waters, and heavens from earth. 2 is often associated also with an enemy. In the Jewish system, the second division of the scriptures is called the Nebaim, the prophets. It is the record of Israel's enmity with God. In Psalms, which are the Hebrew songs of the Old Testament, there are five divisions. The second division, Psalms 42 to 72, are about oppression. It starts with the oppression of the enemy in Psalm 42, 9. In the New Testament, in each case where there are two epistles, the second has some special reference to an enemy. In 2 Timothy, the text references the last days and perilous times which will be the enemy of the Jewish people. In 2 Peter, the text references false prophets and false teachers who are the enemy of the church. In 2 John, the text references antichrist deceivers who are the enemy of the entire world. 2 is also symbolic of contrasts. For example, Cain and Abel, Abraham and Lot, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau. In other words, good and evil, right and wrong. Number 3. 
3 symbolizes divine perfection. It is the first of four divine numbers. 3 is an important number, so keep that in mind. In geometry, it represents the fewest number of line segments that are needed for a geometric symbol, a triangle. It's also the number of dimensions that are needed to make a volume. And the simplest volume uses three line segments of equal length. It forms a cube. Three, and by the way, cube and triangles are important symbols that we will get to in another episode when we're talking about others. Three represents the number of important primary attributes that make up important features of reality. And I'm going to go through a few of these. God himself. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one. The dimensions of God are omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. The primary attested attribute of God. What's the one word that describes God that's used three times in a row? The only description of God. And if you guess love, 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 you're wrong. And if you guess patience, 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 you're wrong. No, it is holy, holy, holy. That is the attestation. All right, so mankind, three attributes, body, spirit, and soul. We are made in God's image. God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're body, spirit, and soul. The limited dimensions of mankind, what are those? There's three of them. Thoughts, words, and deeds. In the material kingdom, we have animals, vegetables, and minerals. Kind of an old way of looking at it, but nevertheless, still pretty accurate. In states of matter, we have solid, liquid, and gas. And, you know, I know plastic and other things, but, you know, those are the three main ones. And in time, we have past, present, and future. So three signifies divine completeness relating to real, substantial things. Earth, for example, was formed on the third day. It's a real, substantial thing, and it's complete. Israel's three-day journey into the wilderness signified complete separation from Egypt. In Numbers 13.23, spies brought back three fruits from the promised land. They were grapes, figs, and pomegranates, if you're wondering, signifying the divine goodness of the land. See how God uses symbols? In both the tabernacle and the temple, two very important things in the Bible, the Holy of Holies was a cube. Remember we talked about cube? It's 10 cubits on a side for the tabernacle, and that's a tent, and 20 cubits on a side for the temple. That's a building. The brazen sea outside the temple, that's a gigantic, basically, bathtub, held 3,000 baths, which is a volume of measurement. It was 30 cubits around. So there's a three buried in both of these. It had 300 ornamental bulbs. These are all important symbols. It was supported by four sets of three oxen, each oxen facing a different direction, north, west, south, and east. Now, this particular order was repeated in both Kings and Chronicles, so there's something important about it. It turns out it's the order that the gospel went out from Jerusalem after Christ's resurrection. It first went north to Samaria, Damascus, and Antioch then west to Caesarea, Joppa, Cyprus, and Corinth, then south to Alexandria and Egypt, and finally east to Mesopotamia, Babylon, Persia, and finally India. A threefold repetition of a number emphasizes that number. It's a very strong emphasis of the number. 
Jesus' ministry was three years long, representing the perfect rejection of him by Israel. Jesus also holds three offices. You know what they are? Prophet, priest, and king. Unified office. Number four. Four is the number of material completeness of material things. It's the number of creation. There are four great elements of antiquity. Earth, air, fire, and water. There's a song about those. There are four seasons. Winter, spring, summer, and fall. There's a, there's a group called the Four Seasons. There are four cardinal directions. North, south, east, and west. The normal order. Genesis 10 lists the fourfold division of mankind. Lands, tongues, families, and nations. Numbers is the fourth book of the Bible. In Hebrew, it's called the wilderness. It records human wanderings, mutterings, and rebellion against God. The fourth book of Psalms is the book of the wilderness. The fourth commandment is the first one that refers to the earth. Remember the Sabbath day. So four is the number of material completeness and material things. Four is often found in the form in the Bible of three plus one, where the one is like the others, but with a significant difference. And here are some examples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. They record Christ's activities on earth as a man. The fourth gospel, John, does so as well, but it looks at Jesus from a more divine perspective. It's the same, but it's a little different. The meal offering of Leviticus 2 was prepared either by baking in an oven on a flat plate or in a frying pan, or it wasn't baked at all. So it was prepared either by baking or not by baking. The sin offering was for individuals, priests, rulers, or common people, or it was for the whole congregation. It was for people, in three cases for individuals, and in one case for everyone. The tabernacle was made of three metals, gold, silver, and brass, and wood. The tabernacle was covered with three animal materials, goat's hair, ram skins, and badger skins, and one vegetable material, fine linen. Manna was described by sight as being small, white, and round, and by taste, it was sweet. Solomon built four houses, three for himself, his own house, the house in the forest of Lebanon, and the house for Pharaoh's daughter, and one house for God, the temple. The examples of four, including three plus one, are all over the Bible. They're numerous, all through the Bible. So you have fun and go and look for some of those. It's, it's, a, it's a repeated theme. Number five. If four is the number of creation, five is creation strengthened by something. Five is the number of grace. Grace means favor, and there are five objects of God's favor. Favor to the miserable is called mercy. Favor to the poor is called pity. Favor to the suffering is called compassion. Favor to the obstinate is called patience. And favor to the unworthy is called grace. Incidents of five commonly include an element of grace. Here are three examples. David selected five smooth stones to confront Goliath, but he only needed one because of God's grace. In Leviticus 26.8, God promises that five of you shall chase a thousand, talking about the soldiers. The Israelites' ability to defeat such an overwhelming enemy came from the grace of God. Just about every measurement of the tabernacle was a multiple of five because the tabernacle embodies God's plan of salvation, which is 
all of grace. Five is also found in the pattern of four plus one. For example, the anointing oil represents God's gracious blessing. In Exodus 30, it was made up of four spices, myrrh, sweet cinnamon, sweet calmus and cassia, and olive oil. The incense of Exodus 30, by which God permitted worship and petitions by his grace, was made up of four sweet spices and salt. And that brings us to number six. We all like six. Six is man's number. It is the number of imperfection, fallenness, and rebellion. Mankind was created on the sixth day. Six days of labor were appointed for man, and the sixth commandment is murder. Six is found in human measurements, foot and a yard, and in time, minutes, 60 seconds, hours, 60 minutes, days, six times four hours, and weeks, six times 28 hours. Solomon's throne had six steps, and his kingdom was soon divided. Abraham made six intercessions for Sodom, signifying man's imperfection in prayer. Six times Jesus was charged with having a devil. In Matthew 12, 24 and Mark 3, 22, those are the same event. In John 7, 20. In John 8, 48. In John 8, 52. In John 10, 20. And in Luke eleven fifteen. Human enmity with Jesus is therefore stamped with this number. Now, I just want to back up a little bit. Matthew, John, and Luke, three books written by three different people, how did they know how many times to talk about Jesus having a devil? It's kind of interesting. Six words are used for man. Four are found in the Old Testament, Hebrew, and two in the New Testament, Greek. Six words are used for man. How did they know to do that? Six persons testified to Jesus' innocence. Pilate in Luke 24, 13. Herod in Luke 23, 15. Judas in Matthew 27, 3. Pilate's wife in Matthew 27, 19, the crucified thief in Luke 23, 41, and the centurion in Luke 23, 47. Again, Matthew and Luke, two different people writing two different books. Now keep in mind, they wrote these books at different times. Did they conspire to make sure that the number six was incorporated into these items? Think about that. And of course, there is the threefold repetition of 666, signifying the beast of revelation. Triple repetition emphasizes the humanness and fallenness uh, and rebelliousness of that individual. There are other significance to that number as well, but we're going to skip over them and we're going to move on to the more important number, which is number seven. Seven is the second divine number after three, and it signifies divine perfection. It is the most important number, arguably, in the Bible. It's one of two signature numbers of God, and it's the primary one. As a number, it occurs 287 times in the Old Testament. That's 7 times 41. Seventh, as a fraction, occurs 98 times in the Old Testament. That's 7 times 14. The term sevenfold occurs seven times in the Old Testament. Remember, the Old Testament is a lot of different books by a lot of different people. Add the above numbers together, the 287 times that the number occurs, the 98 times 7th occurs, and the 7 times 7 fold occurs, 287 plus 98 plus 7 is equal to 392, 
which is 49 times 8, or 7 squared times 8. Now, a number squared or cubed in the Bible adds special emphasis to it. The number 70 occurs 56 times in the Old Testament, 7 times 8. 7 also occurs in the form of 6 and 1, or 6 plus 1. The names of Noah's sons, Shem and Japheth, occur seven times together, signifying perfection. But six of those instances, signifying imperfection and fallenness, are with the third son, Ham, who was cursed by Noah. So, in other words, Ham is associated with the imperfection and fallenness. God's provisions from the promised land included seven items. Wheat, barley, grapes, fig trees, pomegranates, olives, and honey. Deuteronomy 8.8, as opposed to the six provisions from Egypt, fish, cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic in Numbers 11.5. The other two divine numbers are 10, that's ordinal perfection, and 12, that's governmental perfection, but we're not going to address those. We will stop at 7 to examine God's signature. His signature in the original languages is constructed using an intricate system of sevens in the texts. The number weaves itself through the text in so many complex patterns that it is statistically impossible for it to be an accidental occurrence. This pattern is not found in just one or two places, but it's all through the Bible. It was discovered by a little-known mathematician and linguist by the name of Ivan Panin. The number seven is so embedded within the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts that the Bible was either written by 40-plus literary geniuses, who were all geniuses in exactly the same way, or it was written by one literary genius who operated through the 40-plus authors. Here are two brief examples of the pattern of sevens that are found in the text. One is from the Old Testament, one is from the New. These are not exhaustive of the patterns even within these portions of the text, but they're just used as examples to give you an idea. Now, the Old Testament, Genesis, begins in chapter 1, verse 1, with the English text, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the original Hebrew, this sentence contains seven words. The seven words contain 28 letters, 7 times 4. The first Three words contain the subject and predicate, and they have 14 letters, 7 times 2. The place values, the place values are the sequential numbers assigned to each letter of the alphabet, A is equal to 1, B is equal to 2, etc. The place values of these first three words is 140, or 7 times 20. The last four words contain the two objects and also have 14 letters, 7 times 2. The place values for the last four words is 147, 7 times 21. Each of the two objects has seven letters. Now, this is just one little short sentence, and it's not even a complete list of the sevens that are found within the sentence. There are many others that will take a lot uh, of time to describe. So it's a little more complicated, so we're going to skip over those. Instead, we're going to turn to the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, where we're introduced to the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Surely this has got to be one of the more popular sections of Scripture. You know, the begats, he was begot by, he was begot by. It is divided into two sections. The first section of the chapter contains a series of names, most of which you're never going to hear again in the New Testament, and most of them you're not even going to hear in the Old Testament. We're going to start with this section. 
So if you want to turn to that section and follow along, you can. There are 49, you know, this is in the original language, Greek, so you've got to read the Greek. There are 49 vocabulary words in the first half of the genealogy in verses 1 to 11. 49 is 7 squared. The squaring of 7 signifies something of great importance. Of these 49 words, 28 of them, 7 times 4, begin with a vowel. And 21 of them, 7 times 3, begin with a consonant. The 49 words of the vocabulary have 266 letters, 7 times 38. The sum of the figures of the letter, 266 letters, the sum of the figures, that is 2 plus 6 plus 6, 266, just add those numbers together, is 14, or 27. The factors of 266 are 7 times 2 times 19. Remember your math, factoring. The sum of the factors of 266, 7 plus 2 plus 19, is equal to 28, or 7 times 4. Of the 266 letters of the 49 vocabulary words, 140 of the letters, 7 times 20, are vowels, and 126 of the letters, 7 times 18, are consonants. Of the 49 words, 42 of them, 7 times 6, are nouns, and 7 are not nouns. Of the 42 nouns, 35 of them, 7 times 5, are proper names, and 7 are common names. Of the 35 proper names, 28 of them, 7 times 4, are male ancestors of Jesus, and 7 are not. Now, the second half of the first chapter of Matthew has 161 words, 7 times 23. These 161 words occur in 105 forms. That's a, 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 a way of, that's a grammar, 7 times 15, 105 forms. The vocabulary of this section consists of 77 words, in other words, different words, 7 times 11. Now, 11 is the third divine number, or it's another divine number. It's actually the other number. Let me rephrase that. 11 is the other number that God uses. It's an important number in his signature within the Bible. Um, it could be a divine number. I didn't count it. I counted, I counted the divine numbers as 3, 10, um, 7, skipped one, 3, 7, 10, and 12. But 11 is important in the signatures. The other features described in the first section of the chapter are also found in this section of the chapter, so we don't have to go through all of those again. In addition, an angel speaks to Joseph using 28 words, 7 times 4, and 35 forms, 7 times 5. In the second chapter of Matthew, which is a longer chapter, the number of vocabulary words is a multiple of 7. The number of forms is a multiple of 7. And there is not a single paragraph in the Gospel of Matthew that is not constructed in exactly the same way. Wow. Now, that must mean Matthew, the author of Matthew, was obviously a mathematical and a literary genius. I mean, you try this. You sit down and you come up with the genealogy of ten names, and you try to apply these rules. Okay, so you want the number of words. You can come up with any words you want, but you want the number of words that you use in this genealogy to be divisible by seven. You want the number of letters that you use in this genealogy to be divisible by seven. You want the number of words starting with vowels to be divisible by seven. You want the number of words starting with consonant to be divisible by seven. 
You want the number of words that occur more than once to be divisible by seven. You want the number of names to be divisible by seven. Just try to apply those. Just try to try to do that in a genealogy and see how long it takes you. Okay, and that's just scratching the surface of what was done. So I would say Matthew um, is probably a pretty much of a literary genius. The funny thing is the book of Mark, the next book, Matthew, Mark, is constructed in exactly the same way, which makes Mark a mathematical and literary genius too. Uh, and so is Luke. Funny, he's a mathematical and literary genius too. And so is John and James and Peter and Jude and Paul. They're all mathematical and literary geniuses. In fact, all the authors in the entire Bible are mathematical and literary geniuses because the same patterns are found throughout the biblical text, regardless of the language. Now, this is just a surface-level review of the numerical patterns embedded within the biblical passages. They go dozens and dozens of levels deep. One final example, just the because. The word Moses occurs in 31 books, a total of 847 times. Seven times 11 squared. Since 11 is the basically a divine number, but also a number that shows up in God's signature regularly, the squaring of it combined with the seven marks a tri triple emphasis. The name Moses starts in Exodus and it ends in Revelation. The time period over which these books were written is of 1,500 years. And now that's quite a conspiracy of literary coordination. God signed the Bible by weaving those numbers through the texts and throughout multiple texts that were separated by centuries and by numerous authors. This is a feature that could not possibly be duplicated because it would require every author of every book to know what every author of every other book was writing and simultaneously know which letters, books, songs, and other texts would be preserved through time and which would be lost. And even if they had somehow managed that impossible coordination, they would not have known which books, letters, songs, poems, and writings would have been selected for inclusion in the Bible several centuries after the final document was written. Furthermore, why would they care? They were all dead by the time the Bible was compiled, and centuries went by after that before anyone discovered these patterns. Obviously, God wrote the text through the agency of human authors under the influence of God. Now ask yourself, if God went to all that trouble just to sign the texts of the Bible, would he include anything in the texts that's wrong? Could there possibly be any errors of form or substance in the original manuscripts? The answer is no. God's omniscient. He knows everything. He doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't lack any information. In his words, he changes not. In other words, he's always been that way. The Bible is inerrant in its original manuscripts, which have been reconstructed at this point almost perfectly. Now, armed with a perfect, inerrant book that's loaded with information describing the real construction and operation of the world around us, we can use that information to figure out just what the heck is going on in our world today and what God wants us to do about it. That's the importance of the signature in the Bible. It gives us the confidence that what we're being told is true, even when the atheists around us say it's not, even when the scientists around us say it's not, 
even when the other people in other religions say it's not, it is. Because the Bible was written by God and God knows what's true and what's not true. So for now, until next week, stay sharp, stay vigilant, and most importantly, pray to make yourself and me useful to God because he needs us to shepherd and protect his church and his people from the chaos that is ramping up all around us. 